You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You are listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Yannick Luna, founder and CEO of Empire Collective. Yannick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. How did you originally find your way into the digital media industry? It's a very, very long story. Um, I kind of have to give you my spiel, my background of how I actually got here. So um, about seven, eight years ago, I landed at the A&R department at Atlantic Records. And not kidding, my task there was sitting at my desk eight hours a day for three days a week on the back end of YouTube trying to find the next Justin Bieber. I kid you not, that was my initiative. So that was when I first start, got introduced to YouTube, to Twitter, the analytics, the back end, how everything worked there, the influencer side of things. So after that was over, I made it over to this company called New Community Management, which manages Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, James Vincent McMorrow, worked with the Strokes for a little bit of the time, uh, the drums, so a lot of well-known acts. And so I kind of found my way as like an in-house digital marketing manager, started working with a lot of music influencers myself and getting music placements for labels and things like that. So while this is all going on, I actually started my own little music channel called uh, Offbeat City Music. And actually just today passed 3 million overall views, which I'm really, really happy about. And so I think just from all that happening, I kind of found my way into loving the analytics, loving into working with influencers, into relating with them, into creating content myself. And, and are then, you a musician or did you not have a, a love for music? My, my level of musician goes as far as being able to cover Time of Your Life by Green Day on acoustic guitar. That's as far as I can go as a musician. But no, I've just always been on the, on the business side of things. So after that happened, I kind of did that for about five years, six years around there. And then pretty recently, I actually worked with Machinima and uh, worked with a lot of gaming influencers on that end. And so I went from working on, on the artist management side, on the label side, over to basically on the influence and just strictly with YouTube and the digital media and the MCN industry and just kind of seeing how that worked. And to be honest, it just kind of blew my mind knowing I never even knew about content management system on YouTube, never even knew about all these tools that are available for all these influencers and how big that market is exploding at the moment. So after the whole machinima thing was over, I kind of said to myself, you know what? It's been of an accumulation of just experiences where I've worked, conversations I've had with key people in the industry that just kind of told me, you know what, why not do something now? And fortunately, I've had very good relationships with a bunch of influencers who saw my vision for what I had and were completely on board. And so that became a thing. And now we're running for about a year and a half. Very cool. Yeah. So, so that is Empire Collective, which yes. you know is an influencer management company, and you focus on music, of course, and gaming, right. and also sports. Uh, right. We were talking a little bit before the podcast. You're a big uh, basketball fan and right, right. sports addict. So, what inspired you to launch that business? Basically, those are my three passions. Number one is music, gaming, and then sports. So. I think that there has to be a way for you to channel your passion and for you to be able to help people through that passion. And so luckily with my understanding of the business and with the analytical side of everything and just working with influencers for so long, 
I found that there's this industry that I can basically channel everything that I've learned, tone it down and push it over to the influencer side and help them understand everything that comes with it. You know what I mean? So that makes me, for example, if I manage a basketball page, since I'm a basketball fanatic, I know of tons of brands off the top of my head where I can say, oh, hey, let's reach out to this brand, blah, 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 and let's set up something to go on there. I love to be able to relate to every influencer that I manage. And so those are my three passions. So those are the three things that I basically focus on. Very cool. And what are the services that you provide to the influencers you manage? Basically, it comes down to two things. So on the music side of things, from creating my own little music channel, Offbeat City Music. So that was basically where I first started hearing music. So there's this channel, I don't know if you've heard of it, Majestic Casual. It's like one of the biggest EDM channels. They have a stage, I forget at what festival, but they're blowing up to the point where if an artist gets featured on there, they have a chance of actually blowing up their own careers. And so that was where I was able to find so much music. And that kind of inspired me to start my own little music channel called Offbeat City Music. Now, what comes with starting that channel is a lot of struggles because, as you may know, there's a lot of third-party claim content that goes on with uploading music that's not yours, obviously. There's copyright strikes. There's all these things that I, from firsthand doing it myself, just kind of stumbling into doing that. I was able to understand how to properly license a song for YouTube, how to create the contracts for that stuff. And I realized that, this is just speaking on the music side, I realized that these struggles are a lot of struggles that music channels face nowadays. And not everybody has the fortune of being able to work for these companies and get an understanding of how the digital rights side of things actually works, you know. So now that I was able to understand how that works, that's basically what we offer is we offer basically a system that whenever a music channel signs on with us, we provide them with a contract that they can then send over to the record label and say, please sign this agreement clear whatever we need on the back end with your digital distribution, and they're able to successfully monetize on that song. So a lot of companies nowadays don't really offer that kind of support or that help or know that that kind of struggle for these channels exists. So basically I was able to find that niche from sort of creating my own little music channel several years ago and just said, you know what, there's so many music channels out there with tons and tons of subscribers that to this day, even if they have hundreds of thousands of subscribers, they don't really understand digital rights and the consequences that could come with monetizing on things that aren't really yours. So it's that, it's it's brand management. We do merchandising services as well. And the really, really cool thing that I think separates us from any other company that does this sort of thing is from just seeing, for example, Majestic Casual, they actually started their own record label. One of our guys, Alex Rimbaud Music, started his own record label from just a huge following that he has. And so since I've worked at a label myself, I can help them understand the mechanical royalty side of things, the distribution side of things, the production side of things. And so it goes from basically taking them from just YouTube and helping them explode everywhere else. So it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. With a lot of changes that are happening on YouTube nowadays, we need to make sure that we're covering all ends and make sure that we're killing it everywhere. So that's basically where we help them. It's not just on YouTube support. It's most most of all brand support where we take them from YouTube to hopefully label to maybe getting a stage at a festival. It's really the possibilities are endless, but that's kind of the method that we follow. Do you, are you looking at digital distribution as well to Spotify and iTunes, Apple Music? Yes. So right now, a lot of our guys, they found a home on YouTube. And so we actually have some sort of discussions with Spotify to start creating playlists for our guys and to be able to get featured on the Spotify playlist. And so we are taking a look at those things, but right now the focus is YouTube and kind of helping them explode on on all ends. And so, yeah. And YouTube, I think a lot of people don't really realize is truly the largest music listening platform in the world. Right. And music and video have converged as a result of YouTube. Exactly. uh, 
creating a way for a new generation to watch music videos, much like MTV did back with right. television as a format in the 80s. Right. So we've seen the music industry is slowly starting to embrace the digital streaming business. They're taking such a big percentage from companies like Spotify that people are wondering, you know, after, even after the recent IPO, is that sustainable long-term? Right? There's right. still this value gap between the way they were able to monetize in the era of physical distribution right. and what they can do in digital. How do we close that gap? This is funny. This is actually a conversation I had with a few label execs uh, several years ago, because I think at the time we were transitioning from becoming our own label opposed to just using an external label. I think we were partnered with Vagrant Records at the time and we decided to do everything in-house. And so that was where we saw the struggle where physical CDs, vinyl, it's not really selling as much anymore. So we need to look at alternative ways. You know, live concert revenue, of course, is probably the number one revenue stream right now for a lot of bands, a lot of management companies. But there has to be a way that we can still get the music out to people and still earn a decent living from it. Here's this perception about the music industry is a lot of people think that music should be free. And that I disagree 100% because these people will dedicate 24 hours a day, seven days a week to creating these albums, to creating some of the best stuff you've ever heard, right? And those soundtracks become a soundtrack to your night out, a soundtrack to a breakup, a soundtrack to whatever. So there's a big factor there. And these people need to be able to make a living to continue to be able to make this kind of music, to be able to create these experiences and things like that. So I think that one thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a way for people to actually just pay for these subscription services opposed to just sticking with a free version of it. I don't know off the top of my head, the rates of free users or users that are using the system for free on Spotify, for example, opposed to them paying $9.99 a month, which I think is a hell of a deal. For 10 bucks a month, you get access to all kinds of music. You create playlists. You, it's almost like taking the fact of like going back in high school and creating like a little mixtape and giving it to somebody and create your own playlist on there and send it to somebody on their phone. So many things that people don't really take into consideration. It comes down to paying for things like that. So I think that's one way that I think we should close the gap. And I think that revenue should spike. Well, of course, with more paid users, but I think that the whole free model, I don't think is working at all. I think there has to be a way to be able to transition these people and to create an understanding that of what you're getting for $9.99 or whatever the price is. You know? yeah. So I think that's the way of closing the gap. You made an interesting point about the fact that we've seen this big trend back towards live events and touring, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe a few generations ago or a few decades ago, you'd go on tour to promote an album. Now you're creating more music to give you an excuse to go back on tour. Right. And so it's all about what can you sell in merchandise? What can you get from the venue in terms of a share of box office mm-hmm. or, uh, or concession? And so that's really where the money is. And, and the same is true on the video side for influencers. So mm-hmm. when you work with people in the gaming space or the sports space, are you also seeing that they're monetizing more direct to their audience or doing things like live events or streaming or appearances that are generating revenue? It's a combination of all of them. So obviously the number one revenue creator is the content that they create for YouTube, obviously. So that's where their audience lies. And then once they have the audience, they can go and do live appearances like E3, for example, and we can set up their merch. And when they have their merch, obviously that creates a whole new revenue stream. So it's almost like the same, it's in a certain extent, the music model kind of applies to the gaming side of things, obviously with a few twists and turns with the whole merchandising, with the live appearances, with you know creating content on YouTube. So I guess that's kind of how it ties on together on the, on the gaming side. Yeah. yeah. What is the hardest part of being a first-time founder? To be honest, I was very, very fortunate enough to create some very, very great relationships with a few key influencers when I first got my start. So before anything even started, I had really deep conversations with these guys and I laid out my entire vision for them and they were 100% on board. And so luckily the whole creating capital and a lot of typical struggles that founders tend to deal with in the very beginning stages, 
I didn't really have to deal with. So luckily that was kind of out of the way. But I would say the number one thing when building Empire Collective, the number one struggle has been kind of just, it's one thing from relaying your message to somebody you've had a relationship with or a friendship with for several years. Obviously they're gonna trust you and believe you a little bit more when it comes down to reaching out to somebody that I just met or somebody all over email. Obviously, they're going to be a little reluctant to what it is you're saying because the, the friendship, the relationship isn't there. So I think the number one struggle that I've come across is basically trying to sign new influencers and kind of remove the whole misperception that every MCN, every company that deals with YouTube influencers is bad because I think that's a really big perception that's out there from people who don't really understand how it really works from the inside. So I would say... As, as a founder and just the company itself, I haven't really had that much of a struggle, but I would say the number one struggle just in general when starting this company has been that very mm. fact. How do you specifically address that? And how can the industry change that perception of MCNs or other companies that work with influencers providing value and helping to grow their businesses? I think uh, to answer the first part of your question, number one thing that I make sure to relate to everyone who we work with is that we don't promise anything. We just make sure that we're going to lay out whatever it is that we're doing and we're going to try our hardest to get to that point. We have deep conversations with these guys and basically try to figure out what their vision is for their brand, for their channel, for whatever it is they have going on. And if we have a way of being able to help them to get to that vision, then there's a way that we can actually help and offer some sort of service. If there isn't, it doesn't matter what size it is, we don't work with them because we don't want to just take money just to take money. And that's a big misperception that's out there too, is when I'm a new creator, for example, and I've gotten so many support emails from boards working in the MCN industry that say, hey, I'm giving you a percentage of my revenue every single month, but I'm not, I haven't talked to anybody. I haven't gotten any support. So that's the number one thing that I want to avoid at all costs is to make sure that our, I guess, our customer service is 100% top notch, that I check in with my guys regularly, almost on a, either on a weekly or daily basis to see, hey, what's going on? We develop really, really in-depth relationships with them, even if like they're getting married, if they have a girlfriend, I'm like, hey, how's it going with your girlfriend? Need any relationship advice, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it goes beyond just like a working relationship. I think one one thing that I follow is, um, so I worked on, uh, for Brian Ling at New Community Management, and he's worked with like 311, Edward Sharp and Matt Zeros, tons of bands. And he was one of my mentors in the music industry. And his model for the label that I worked at was that we had to look for friends to support opposed to just bands to sign. And so that's not our company model per se, but that's something that I do take into consideration with saying, hey, we want to create friendships and be able to help these friends get to where they want to go, opposed to just creating a working relationship with these guys and saying, oh, hey, here's your payment. Talk to you next month when I get your other payment. You know, it's not really like that. So that's what I'm doing. That's what me and my company are doing to kind of prevent that from happening. And I think to answer the second part of your question, what the industry is doing right now is, I mean, we saw it with Maker Studios. I'm, I'm sure you heard about that, that. They actually downgraded their network by, I don't know how much percent, but they got rid of so many influencers in their network because they had several thousands. And from a company perspective, if you have six, seven talent managers in your team to 20,000 influencers, that's impossible to manage. No matter how good you are, how, no matter how much you work on a daily basis, that is impossible to manage. And so obviously when you can't give that same level of support across the board, all these little influencers are going to say, hey, I'm not getting any support. I'm giving you the same amount of percentage as the next guy, but I'm not getting any support from you. And so I think the industry has now realized that, that growing their numbers and saying, oh, hey, we have the biggest network was not the way to go. And I think a lot of companies went that route. Machinima went that route several years ago. Maker Studios went that route several years ago. And I think that we're going to start to see a domino effect for all these companies that say, hey, we can't manage this. And it's providing more negative value to our brand 
than good to our influencers where we have so many people to manage and we just can't manage the workflow. So I think that's what MCNs can do nowadays is just kind of reduce the amount of just to really pay attention to the numbers and to the very little guys, because even if a very little guy, the smallest guy in your network has 50 people that he follows, times that by like a thousand influencers, that starts to make some noise and starts to create some really bad negative feedback for your company. And I saw that at Machinima. I saw that from talking to people, executives in the MCN industry. It's all the same thing. And a lot of people were really, really interested in increasing their network numbers, increasing the revenue, which obviously is necessary. But I think that was a big mistake that a lot of companies made several years ago. And I think they're now starting to realize that. Yeah, it's, an, it's such a fascinating thing. And I hear it a lot, especially now that there's this kind of uh, criticism of the early MCNs, right, mm-hmm. for what people now characterize as emphasizing quantity over quality. Right. And I don't know that that was the case. I think Maker Studios, Full Screen, Awesomeness TV, Machinima get vilified for that when really, to put it into context, that was the way that the incentives were aligned at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Early on when YouTube rolled out the partner program, they administered it through MCNs because YouTube is not a customer service organization. It right. didn't know how to support emerging talent. It's not a media company. It was a technology platform and saw this, you know, budding UGC environment and creator community. Right. And they wanted to create a way for those people to monetize mm-hmm. and uh, doing that through the MCNs. So, of course, now the MCNs are, are growing up and they find that they can make money through the AdSense program, through advertising. Uh, later, you know, there'll be subscription transaction opportunities as well, but predominantly advertising at first because they were all competing for talent. They were competing for resources. Mm-hmm. They were competing for investor capital. There was this mad incentive to scale, right? Mm-hmm. And there was this land grab because it was brand new. No one had quite figured out what the model would be. Right. And that's why you saw these massively large organizations that were trying to help as many creators as they could and, right. and doing that through people, right? There was a human component to that. And they also, many of them tried to build software or license software uh, to provide scalable support and solutions to these creators. And obviously it didn't work. We've all seen that that model was too big and and kind of the ad network approach was not the future of the space. And the real money was in branded content, right? Right. So influencer marketing, branded entertainment, even paid media to an extent. And so through the YouTube partner program, uh, we've seen policy changes where YouTube is encouraging a move towards smaller networks. But I think a lot of those larger scale players realized that the, the model had changed as well. And they were right. launching alternative divisions or changing their business model. I want to say that and I'll get down off my soapbox because no while I do think those companies didn't always do everything perfectly and there were times when they could have provided better support, I think they get uh, arrows in their back a bit for being the pioneers and oh, yeah. creating and figuring out that new model. To turn this back into a question, mm-hmm. yeah, no, sure thing. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about that historical context and what do you think the future holds for the influencer management space? First of all, I 100% agree. I think that they do get a lot of flack for being the pioneers in the space and for being the only people that people can actually point a finger to and say, hey, you did this wrong. I didn't do anything. So I 100% agree on that. And I'm sorry, can you repeat your second question? What do you think the future holds for the influencer oh, for management space? I think that we're barely getting started on that. So there are so many brands out there. Like I can even talk about the music industry, for example. I remember I was in a meeting several years ago and our president walked in and said, we have to think of marketing nowadays. This is like four or five years ago, not too long ago. And he said, we have to think of marketing nowadays as we thought of marketing in the 90s. And I'm like, whoa, I 
completely disagree with that. You know, obviously I was having an internal struggle with myself to like, should I just say this out loud? Like, this is not the way we should go. There's so many things we can do nowadays that weren't available back in the nineties. We don't just pitch to K-Rock. We don't just pitch to Pitchfork. We can do so many things. So I think right now in the music industry, there's a big transition with influencer marketing. So it's even like one of my guys actually just got a song featured. I forgot the the underground hip hop artist name, but um, he had a vlog and we were able to get that song with like two or three plays, very good friend of mine. And he was able to get that featured onto that vlog. And so those kind of placements, those deals, like another key revenue stream in the music industry is sync licensing. And so getting music onto TV shows, onto MTV's Teen Mom, for example, you know, where they show like the song underneath. There's starting to be a big transition phase from the traditional just media and trying to get our products placed on a commercial, on a billboard, whatever, to now looking at influencers and looking at, Instagram pages and looking at Twitter accounts and saying, hey, we can do the same thing that we're doing by just wasting our money on a billboard. We can do the same thing, that same campaign on Twitter, and we can actually get metrics. We can get results. We can get, see what worked, see what didn't work, which I don't think you can get that from a billboard. Obviously, it's just an example. But I think that that's something that's right now is in the middle of exploding, but it can only grow from here. It has so much potential. And I think the sky's the limit with that because it's just barely, this whole industry, I think, is barely starting to get discovered. And once it gets to the masses, it's going to explode. And so many people nowadays, like, for example, I don't know if you heard about the whole Ninja and Drake collaboration with playing with Fortnite. And now it's coming up with how much money Ninja makes. And a lot of people are like, how the hell is he making so much money? I'm like, you guys are like a decade behind on this game. They're creating entertainment. They're creating the same value that there are tons of kids who love his content, who tech into his channel. I don't know how often he uploads to watch his stuff. And it's the same thing as me going on TV and watching something myself and being entertained by something that I watch on TV. It's the same thing. So I think it's, to answer your question, it's just going to explode. It's just right there. I think for a lot of us that are in the space, it's a very, very exciting time because our opportunities to scale and to grow and the potential for all this stuff is just, there's no limit right now. I agree. I always encourage people to think that it's still early innings for Mm -hmm. online video. And we're in the midst of a revolution, right? A platform shift in the way that people consume and create uh, media and entertainment. And you mentioned the esports example. People say, well, why would I watch someone play a video game? Mm-hmm. Why do you watch someone play a basketball game? Or right. why do you watch the World Series of Poker? Right? It's the right. same idea that this is entertainment and people want to watch their favorite stars engaging in the activities that they love. Right. So the sky is the limit because it's the beginning, early stages of this transformation. And I love the fact that you know you, you challenge some of those assumptions. You're looking at new models. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I love to ask people is what are some beliefs that you hold that other people might think are completely crazy? I think kind of going back to what I mentioned before, the whole motto of what our old label live by, because they see that as how can you grow your company? How can you turn down a very big influencer knowing there's so much money on the table? And I'm like, because I've, I've seen firsthand how a lot of these companies, they've operated over the years. And obviously, a lot of us, when we're new into the space, it's just strictly trial and error. Obviously, we're going to do things that work. We're going to do things that don't work. And so luckily, I've gone into the space where there's so much of history there now, not a lot, but there's enough history there for me to understand what can transpire by doing certain things. And so I think that's the number one thing, honestly, when I tell people that is because they say, if I have a meeting with a big influencer and I say, you know what, I'm sorry, like as much as I want to sign you, like we have the contract in hand, like there's nothing we can do to help you. And that's just coming from us. And we'll actually turn them down. I have no fear about doing that because I believe that doing the right thing is way better than just saying, oh my God, here's several thousands of dollars a month, but we can't do anything for them. That's just not the way to go. I don't think so. 
So I think when I say that to people, they're like, well, how can you scale your company? How can you create more revenue? I'm like, it's just being patient with it. It's been going well so far and I can't really complain. So yeah, I think it's smart to prioritize the long term, right? And right. thinking about what is the value I can add to someone. Right. Because if you sacrifice your reputation for short-term gain, exactly. you know, you'll lose the, the right. long-term potential. Right. And so that goes back to what I mentioned before, that there's not a lot of history there in the MCN industry, but there is enough to know and to see what went right and what went wrong. And so I, from gaining all those experiences from just talking to several executives in the industry, I'm able to kind of apply that to my company and make sure that we prioritize, like you said, the long-term gain opposed to just like a short-term financial gain, sacrificing reputation, because that's just going to kill us eventually. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what do you see? I think right now we're in a big, big transition from pre-recorded content over to live streaming. I mean, a lot of people, when the whole Drake thing happened, like, what's Twitch? I'm like, Amazon bought Twitch for I don't know how much money. Several, yeah, yeah, for a billion dollars several years ago. And I think that's a lot of my guys as well. They're making the transition from pre-recorded content over to live streaming. And I think that's going to be a big, big thing that we're seeing in the video industry is how companies are going to be able to adapt. If Twitch is going to be able to provide that same revenue model as YouTube, where so many people have been able to create companies and create really well livelihoods for themselves off of YouTube. And so I think that's a big change that's coming. And I think also an embrace with VR and AR is going to be a big, big thing as well. So that and sort of the esports content uh, side of things as well. I think that's just, it's already exploded. Like for example, I was just in Vegas uh, about three weeks ago. I don't remember the name of the hotel. It's that pyramid. I think it's called Elixir. Is that what it's called? Oh, the Luxor. Luxor. There you go. They created an esports arena inside of it. Wow. Yeah, they created, yeah. And I saw the billboard like right when I got off, got into my Uber out of the airport. So they were building an esports arena. I'm like, wow, that's massive. And I was at Evo several years ago. And the amount of people that show up for that, you know, it's amazing. And people just walk by and they're like, what are all these kids doing? Like wearing like their insane uniforms and things like that. Like, what are they doing? You know? And so I think those are the three things that are going to explode in the next couple of years. Yeah. I love those predictions. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. If you were starting a business in the video space today, what would you do? To be honest, I think I would build either some sort of like production studio or something like that. I love storytelling and I love creating just films and just writing and things like that. So I'm very tied to the creative side of things. It's like whenever my influencer has a struggle with coming up with a caption or a thumbnail or anything like that, like just involve me in the creative process. I would love to help out with that. I would do definitely something on the creative side of it's like writing original content or if it's filming original content or somewhere along those lines, I wouldn't. I don't know how to piece it together, but somewhat on the creative side of things, opposed to on the business side of things. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. This has been awesome. Where can people find out more about you and more about Empire Collective? More about me. Actually, you guys can follow me on Instagram. It's Yannick underscore moon. My last name is Luna. It's moon in Spanish. And about Empire Collective, uh, you can just head over to the website, uh, empirecollective.la and just hit us up on there. And I'll be more than happy to talk to anyone who replies on there. So. Fantastic. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your experience in music and gaming and thinking about the future of those huge categories and how you're revolutionizing entertainment and what's happening with influencers. There's still so much to come and I love uh, hearing your thoughts on it. So thanks again. Definitely. Thank you for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.